This is an ABC podcast. Hi from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone on RN. It's great to be with you once again. If you've been living under lockdown for any significant period over the past 18 months, then you may have been spending more time with your children than you had anticipated back in those innocent, unsuspecting days of late 2019. And especially if you've been homeschooling your kids during that time, then you might have gained some new insights into how they learn, how they process information and solve problems, how they reason things through, how they sometimes stumble over this or that conceptual hurdle. In short, how they stack up as philosophers. Well, one person who's been thinking a lot about all this is today's guest. My name's Matt Beard. I'm a philosopher. I'm the program director of the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship at Crown Lana Centre for Ethical Leadership. And I'm the resident philosopher on the ABC's podcast for kids, Short and Curly. Short and Curly, I'll just mention in passing, is an excellent podcast. If your kids haven't yet discovered it, then there's a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website and we'll be hearing from some of the Short and Curly Brains Trust kids a little later in the program. Many of us, I I think, at least from time to time, we tend to regard kids as sort of entry-level epistemic agents. They might come out with something profound every once in a while, but that's usually unintended. Basically, they're just vessels that need to be filled with the wisdom and the knowledge of their elders. But today, I'm talking with Matt Beard about what we discover when we drop all that condescension and take children seriously as knowing subjects. Are children philosophers? And if they are, what kind of philosophers are they? I think it's a really good question to ask what kind of philosophers are children because they're certainly not philosophers in the sense that we think about philosophy as an academic discipline. Um, The virtues of intellectual rigour, of organised thinking, of reasoned collaborative debate are not necessarily ones that kids have a natural predilection toward. So I think for me, the way that I see this is more that kids are kind of proto-philosophers and have motivations that I would argue are possibly more pure than what we see um, amongst adults practising academic philosophy where it kind of is crossed over with institution and status and, you know, job security and all those kinds of things. And so, like, to be a little bit more specific, you know, we've got someone like, someone like Aristotle who talks about philosophy beginning in wonder, right? And I think that's the way that I see kids as proto-philosophers is that the world is just new and strange and doesn't follow formal rules that they already understand and therefore find predictable and uninteresting. Like, there is a wonder that they take to the world Um, when they're not so old and leathery, that I think is kind of wonderful. And that's the sense in which I see kids as philosophers, is that there is a wonder that we can tap into that is a very pure starting point for philosophy. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a sense in which philosophy is seen as the quintessential reflective activity, you know, Descartes sitting in his cabin and meditating on the nature of consciousness. And if you look at young children, I mean, obviously, they're not incapable of reflection, but they are, uh, to some extent, slaves of the passions. And I mean, that's not a criticism. It's one of the things that's wonderful about kids. But is it also, in some sense, antithetical to the business of philosophical reflection in that Cartesian sense? Well, yes and no. Yes, 
it is in the pure sense of kind of like our image of the philosopher as, you know, armchair-bound, reflective, kind of considering the true and essential nature of things. But I don't know that we, like, how much we want to invest in that model of philosophy anyway, <laughs> right. right? Like that idea that we can understand and explain the world at a distance from it, I think is something that has been subject to a great deal of criticism um, within the academic discipline. And I think that when you actually talk with, with kids about philosophical questions, they are wanting to respond initially from their own experience, from their own intuition. And I don't want to give the impression that we ought to immediately validate those experiences or intuitions as being, you know, um, absolutely unchallengeable in terms of their usefulness, in terms of their veracity. But it's not to say that it's a less acceptable mode of philosophy to say that we we begin with intuition we begin with sense experience we begin with um with data and information and then we start to explore the implications of that that rather than saying well we have these theories and we apply those to the world i think that when kids are engaging in questioning they're engaging in the world as it is um, and then trying to infer from that what we can learn. And I think that method of philosophy has a lot of value in terms not just of the way in which um, we engage with kids around ideas and concepts, but in the, in terms of the way that all of us think through things. You know, I know working with adults that story and actually getting into the detail of a case study or a scenario is more likely to elicit really robust philosophical reflection than is, you know, the trolley dilemma in its purest thought experiential form, because we're kind of carving out all of the complexity of the world. And I think kids are really eager to throw that complexity in there. The American psychologist and philosopher Alison Gopnik came up with a nice term for a social attitude to children that I think is quite dominant in our culture. It's this notion that children are defective adults, quote-unquote, and that their education should be a process of, you know, fixing the defects and correcting all of their misapprehensions about the world. What do you make of that understanding of what a child is? I completely agree with Gottman's characterization. I think that there is a very paternalistic, come patronising approach that we take when we're engaged with kids. And, you know, when I, I get this as well, just in social interactions, when people learn that, you know, I, you know, I might do serious, in air quotes, philosophy, you know, with adults or with scholars, and then I also do this podcast for kids, and it's like, oh, that's so wonderful, isn't that so lovely? Kids are so innocent, it must be so delightful. And there is this immediate assumption that that's not, that's not real, that's not legitimate, that's not kind of actual philosophy because kids aren't actual people who can philosophize, nor is it necessary that their philosophical reflections, um, we shouldn't think of those as important in the same way, right, because they're not adults yet. So I completely agree with the characterization that Gopnik gives I think that what is happening under the scenes is that there is this bold-faced attempt to deny that we are all defective adults, right? Like the idea that we are these paragons of virtue and reason, which we all know that we're not until we start to engage with a child. And then suddenly all of these hierarchies come into play and we take a very... Um, 
charitable interpretation of ourselves and our cognitive abilities and our moral virtues, that we model them onto these children so that they might become excellent themselves by learning from us. But I mean, wisdom is an interesting word to bring to this discussion, because I I guess often when kids say something, something wise, something deep, it's seen as some sort of adorable accident. And and that's patronizing. But then there's also something to be said for the notion that wisdom comes with experience and the longer the experience, the deeper the wisdom. And kids, just by virtue of the amount of time they've been on the earth, they, they don't have a wealth of experience. What do you think of that, that connection between experience and, and wisdom and whether children have that? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think there's a, we have these funny contradictory instincts here, right? Like, you know, um, there will be, I think, often made up you know, instances that you'll see on social media of like, my child just asked me why it is that we don't do X, Y, and Z. And like, you know, it somehow is meant to take on some grander moral message because it comes from a child who is innocent and yet can cut through all of the noise and nonsense. And yet at the same time, we're quite sceptical of the ability to extract genuine insight and wisdom from kids. And I think that's valid, right? Like, I don't want to seem like I'm saying that, you know, we are all corrupted as we grow old and thus we ought to turn back to our childlike states. You know, kids are ridden with epistemic vices, right? Like the ways that they come to know are often, you know, mistaken. My son is five and when we get into a discussion where he asserts something as being true that, you know, isn't, um, his first resource, his first strategy is to make up a learning occasion where he was told that this thing was true. So I was saying, no, we learned that in class. It's absolutely true. Now I know what he's learning in class. See, that's not happening. So I don't want to paint them as paragons of, um, of knowledge. But what I think is interesting when we engage with children in their own situation and we're open to the possibility that they might be reasoners, that they might be thinkers, that we afford them what someone like Miranda Fricker would call epistemic justice, that we actually do have something to learn from them and they have something to offer that is worthy of hearing. We form in ourselves a certain set of epistemic virtues that we kind of forget, like a genuine love of knowledge, like intellectual humility. And we also encourage those kinds of traits in kids that we start to encourage and reward curiosity, questioning, collaboration and uncertainty and the the self-belief that we can work through uncertainty to difficult and complex answers rather than our instinct being to provide an answer to explain the world, to render it um, interpretable or understandable when oftentimes it, it isn't that to us nor is it to children, and yet we present it in that way. And then as they grow, they become frustrated that the world doesn't actually respond to these simple and straightforward rules. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. I'm David Rutledge, talking this week with Matt Beard from the Short and Curly podcast about philosophy and kids. My parents swear like it's basically the end of the world. And um, then I asked, why do you get to swear all the time? And then I accidentally say it because Maggie's just hit me over the back of the head with a plastic cricket bat. And then Dad gets up me and I'm like, but you always swear. And then he always says, well, because I'm the dad and and nothing's going to change that. My parents always say, like, don't have too much technology in you. Like, only allowed a certain amount of time a day. But when I look, like, when I'm outside or... 
working or something, they're always on their phones. Uh, sometimes in our house, my, my mum might say, you need to eat healthy. And then next thing you know, she's sitting in bed eating dairy milk chocolate with caramel. On the, or when we go to a coffee shop, she goes, oh, you can only have one milkshake and she'll have like 10 coffees. Um, Dad says, like, because I like fishing, I like fishing a lot. Um, he says, don't spend all your money on lures. And then I spend, let's say, $20, $30 on a few lures and then Dad will go and spend like 350 <laughs> In the morning, Mum always says, make your bed. So every morning, I have to make my bed. And I go in their room, and their bed is completely messy. Children have a sense of fairness that seems to emerge very early in their development. It makes me think of Nietzsche and that insight of his that we're formed as moral agents by our submission to the law and that the law ultimately is enforced by pain, right? You, you, can, you can resist the law, but at the end of that road, inevitably there's going to be pain inflicted on you by the enforcers of the law. And I, I can remember as a kid, I wasn't particularly rebellious, but I had a very clear and sometimes very frustrated sense of how that worked, like parents or school teachers saying that at the end of the day, you just have to do what we say, and if you don't, you're going to regret it. It all seemed unfair when I was a kid because my parents and teachers were far from perfect themselves. You know, I sensed that that authority of theirs was was somehow unearned. Yeah, I think that there, there are two interesting things in what you said for me. Um, the first is I, I think that there is a real sense of resentment about what kids and young people perceive as abuses of authority on behalf of adults. Um, and adults will often formulate their use of authority, use of power in kind of paternalistic terms or in terms of um, respect, that there is some kind of deference that young people and children ought to provide to adults simply by virtue of their seniority and age. Um, and I think that's something that we really want to closely interrogate as a social norm um, before we start to participate in that as adults. And one of the reasons that we we did an episode on hypocrisy was precisely because it was the thing that we got written to the most about by kids. And when our producer, Kyla Slavin, would go out to talk to kids about different topics that we're making episodes about, they would be like, they would continually refer back to perceived hypocrisies and perceived injustices of adults who were not following the same rules that they're asking kids to be subject to. And I think this is important for two reasons. Firstly, like we made the episode so that we could explore that and do justice to what is a really significant part of, um, of children's lives in terms of this relationship with adults and how they manage that. But secondly, we know that a lot of our listeners are adults. They are the teachers and parents who are listening along with the kids, who are participating with the kids. And so there was a sense in which we wanted to be a little bit subversive here and we wanted to actually confront our adult listeners with a question, which was, do you think that the double standards that you utilise are actually justifiable? And can you justify them to the young inquiring mind who is now going to engage with you in a conversation around this? And then there was a second layer to it, which is to say that if you are the kind of adult who wants your children to be listening to a kid's philosophy and ethics podcast and therefore being an inquiring mind and open and questioning, um, you need to submit yourself to that in a way. You need to humble yourself and be more democratic in the way in which you talk about norms and you talk about ideas and you talk about behaviours because that's exactly what 
the podcast and you by virtue of giving them access to the podcast are saying that they ought to be. And so I think there's that really important point as well, which is that sometimes we want our kids to be excellent and curious and open-minded in exactly the context and arenas where it's comfortable for us to have them be curious and open-minded and, and free thinkers. And then we kind of hope that they will switch that off when we just need to get out the door or when we just need them to perform for grandma. Like, and I think that's, that's the part where I think things get really frustrating and where we sometimes hold on to old ideas about hierarchy and power as adults that, in fact, when we really interrogate them, we know that we need to let go of. It's just that because we can wield that power in certain situations, it becomes really tempting to do so, especially when our last patient nerve has been completely fried. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, what happens, though, when you start pulling at that thread and start interrogating these notions of power and authority? Because it's, it's something that I think all, all authoritarian systems, all governments are are nervous about, you know, and you have this tradition of philosophical scepticism, the so-called postmodern approach to knowledge that identifies contradictions, identifies hidden agendas and the exercise of power behind all truth claims. I mean, do you think that children are naturally sceptics and should they be encouraged in that scepticism? No, I don't think they're naturally sceptical. I think they're naturally very trusting sponges of information, especially when it comes from someone who either formally or informally has been positioned as a kind of epistemic authority. And so I really think it is important for us to create opportunities for scepticism, for critical analysis. We're seeing more and more the importance of that in ages of misinformation. And as we realise the ways in which, you know, um, certain information that has treated been treated as common knowledge for a long time has in fact been, you know, one person's story of history that excludes particular narratives or particular traditions. So it is really important. I was reading just last night about a, a social science teacher in the US who intentionally writes really bad and out-of-date chapters into her social science textbooks precisely so that the kids get this really jarring experience of wanting to trust what they've read in a textbook but simultaneously feeling like there's something that doesn't sit right with the information they've been presented with. And then suddenly they, they're able to do some exercises around how do we decide whether or not this is a source that deserves to be given epistemic credibility. You know, that's one of the skills of a good thinker is to know what sources of testimony, what sources of information deserve to be treated credibly and which ones don't, and to be assigning that on the basis of their, you know, their veracity, their ability to actually tell us something about the world and not on the basis of their social authority or the status or the way in which other people treat them. Kids are not naturals at that. Um, and so that is something that needs to be cultivated and needs to be taught. But the key is to do it in a way that isn't about saying, here are the power structures that you need to be sceptical of, and here are the ones that you ought to trust. Because that's doing precisely the thing that we're trying to subvert here, which is, you know, virtuously formed true belief. Um, it's about giving them the, the tools, the willingness and the space and opportunity to explore those things with curiosity rather than um, prescriptively telling them what's trustworthy and what's not. Because sometimes, like, I don't mean to, but then sometimes I, you, I just automatically read paper. 
And I don't even need to do it, I just rip it. I do this when I get, like, if I, I zone out a lot, like, I'll just, I'll be looking at the board, listening to the teacher, and then my brain will start thinking about something completely different. Aunt, ten minutes later, she's like, yep, okay, um, did everyone hear that? And I'm like, I have no idea what she was talking about because I zoned out. <laughs> and I don't really have control over that, it just happens. Free will and responsibility is, is something that philosophers have been wrangling over for thousands of years. What what insights do kids bring to this question of exactly how responsible we can be said to be for our actions? Because this is another issue, isn't it, that, that looms very large in the world of the child? Yeah, again, like this is where those conversations about agency become interesting and where I think we start to recognise that norms and beliefs aren't, aren't just assigned in one direction and imposed on the other. Like in the case of the way that we think about kids and responsibility, there is a reason why some of these beliefs have emerged because the kids are also great at denying responsibility for things. It's not my fault. Someone else told me to do it, you know, or it's not my fault that I forgot. Um, And there there are real insistences at times that kids want to deny their agency, mostly because they're trying to avoid being punished. And so we probably need to talk a little bit about discipline in this context as well. But for me, the interesting thing about talking with kids about free will and responsibility was actually just how similar the views that they were presenting were with where we're still at in thinking through this problem philosophically from a scholarly standpoint, you know, like there are just ways in which we can engage in certain conversations that remind us that we don't have the answers. This is still a challenge that we're trying to figure out. And I think this is one of the one of the most intractable problems in philosophy is how we deal with the challenge of moral responsibility along with what we know about free will and about the development of character and the role of neuroscience in decision-making and all of these different factors and forces. So, yeah, I, I found this one not necessarily to be particularly illuminating, like, wow, kids think a particular way about free will and responsibility, just that they tended to surface all of the basic questions and challenges that we're still trying to figure out. I can remember having a uh, confused take on moral responsibility when I was a kid because I was one of those kids who told lies, like not malicious lies, but just fantasy stuff, you know, my dad's an astronaut, that kind of thing. And I knew that you weren't supposed to lie, but my reasoning was, and I can remember very clearly thinking this through, that if nobody knew for sure that something was a lie, then it might as well be true. It was like something has to be perceived as false for it to actually be false in, 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 a, in a culpable sense. And I still think about that as a philosophical position. It's morally bankrupt, but not without a certain kind of depth. And I wonder if you remember things that you thought as a child that you now consider to have been philosophically interesting. It's interesting for me, like as a child, I think, you know, I was raised in quite a strongly religious community um, where ideas about certainty and being very confident, I would say now overconfident in what counts as virtue, what counts as vice, what morality is and is not and what things are right and wrong. There was an enormous level of confidence in those kinds of messages. Um, And so I think it was later in life that I started to kind of discover that there were, there were other ways of thinking about this and that, that I found quite liberating. But I do remember one thing, which kind of I was thinking about only recently, because I used to love playing chess as a kid. And I remember thinking about 
that wouldn't it just be better if world leaders played a game of chess to resolve conflicts rather than going to war, which is just one of those awesomely innocent, fantastical things that kids come up with. Um, but then I went on to do a doctoral doctoral research in military ethics and just war theory and read a whole lots of tomes about pacifism and sort of the ways in which actually chess is kind of a metaphor for the way that conflict is played out by political leaders. They actually are kind of playing chess. It's just with real people. And so the ideas kind of came back in a, in quite a different way. But now I can't say that I had the same, you know, novel philosophical positions on truth-telling that you might have. <laughs> yeah, novel's a, a charitable way of, of describing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not proud. Um, Matt, just finally, what do you think that adults can learn from kids in terms of becoming better thinkers? What, what have you learned yourself? I think there's something kind of transformative that happens when we take on the responsibility of being a moral exemplar of good thinking to children, of charitable thinking, of curious and open-minded thinking, and of respectful conversation. Um, And I don't mean respectful in the kind of performative civil way, but where we genuinely afford each other epistemic justice. I think there's something transformative that happens to you when you try to engage with young people in that way, because you suddenly become aware of the amount of beliefs that you might have claimed to have held with certainty that actually, when you engage in those questions in precisely the way that you want young people to engage in questions, you think, oh, maybe not. Maybe I'm not as confident about this as I thought. But the second thing I think that I would encourage people to do is to recognise all of the kind of bad ways of thinking that kids model and we smile at affectionately and sort of know that they'll grow out of. And then just pause for a second and think how many of those bad ways of thinking are actually ways that we still go about having discussions today. And don't do the thing where you go, yes, that's exactly the way that politicians have debates, shame on them. I think it's an opportunity for self-reflection and to say, what of these modes of thinking, what of these trappings are things that we're actually in our own ways kinds of guilty of. So to go back to the example of my son who creates, you know, false authorities for him to draw on, um, you know, when, when he's found to be wrong, like how many of us actually do appeal to some kind of authority? You know, everyone says this. We had a former president of the United States saying that. Everyone is thinking this. Um, but we all do it. We all appeal to authorities. We all look for social standing, social messages that try to back up our argument when we don't think that we have the kind of the resources to justify it for ourselves because we're terrified to say that we don't know. We're terrified to admit we might be wrong. We're terrified to be found out to be hypocrites. Um, and I think all of those kinds of social pressures and social fears are things that, A, um, kids don't have, and so it's a really playful way to talk about ideas, and, B, that we should try really hard not to pass on to kids because they are epistemic vices. They are things that are going to get in the way of um, their ability to deal with the issues that they're going to have to deal with as they get older. And, see, if we think part of our responsibility as adults is to help them to grow up well-formed, then we should try to avoid modelling behaviours that aren't that for them. Matt, it's been great to talk with you. Thanks so much for coming on to The Philosopher's Zone. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. And Matt Beard is the Program Director of the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship at Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership. 
He's also a philosopher in residence at Short and Curly, which is the ABC's excellent ethics podcast for kids. More info on the website, that's the Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And you can find me, David Rutledge, on Twitter at David P. Zone. Thanks so much for joining us this week. See you next time. Bye.